This morning's sermon is from Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Author and pastor Gordon McDonald, he tells the story of going to an AA, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, where men and women were gathered. And he did it because he had some friends that were recovering alcoholics. And he wanted to see what they were experiencing, what they were going through. And he he recalls this particular uh, meeting. And he says this, one morning, Kathy, I guessed her age at 35, joined us for the first time. One look at her face caused me to conclude that she must have been Hollywood beautiful at age 21. Now her face was swollen, her eyes red, her teeth rotting. Her hair looked unwashed, uncombed for who knows how long. I've been in five states in the past month, she said. I've slept under bridges on several nights, been arrested, been raped, and been robbed. And he said, now she's beginning to weep. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore. But I can't stop drinking. I can't stop. I can't. And she's sobbing. He says, next to Kathy was a rather large woman, Marilyn, sober for more than a dozen years. She reached with both arms toward Kathy and pulled her close, so close that Kathy's face was pressed to Marilyn's ample breast. I was close enough to hear Marilyn speak quietly into Kathy's ear. Honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. We can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming. You hear me? Keep coming. And Marilyn kissed Kathy on top of the head. And then McDonald writes this, I was awestruck. The simple words, the affection, the tenderness, how Jesus-like. I couldn't avoid a troubling question that morning. Could this have happened in the places where I have worshiped? Would, have, would there have been a space in the program for Kathy to tell her story? Would there have been a Maryland to respond in this way? Who does Jesus welcome? It is the question that he is answering when he launches into these three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And the reason he is telling these parables is they are a response 
to what we read in verse two. It says the Pharisees were, they were muttering. They were grumbling. They were complaining. Why? Because they said he is receiving sinners. He's welcoming sinners and he's eating with them. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, let me tell you three parables. See, they disagreed. They didn't like what Jesus was doing. They didn't like that he was welcoming sinners. And so Jesus said, let me tell you why I welcome sinners and who I welcome. So who does Jesus welcome? First, he, he welcomes sinners who need rescue. And Jesus uses in this first parable imagery that we're not too familiar with. It's, it's, it's sheep-shepherd imagery. Now, in Jesus' day, that was an incredibly relevant illustration. They were all over the place. You turn, and they would see a shepherd. They'd see sheep. But, I, you know, if you look around in Jacksonville, uh, you don't see that. We don't see shepherds. We don't see sheep. You have to travel to other parts of the world to find that. And yet the scriptures over and over tell us that we are like sheep. We heard it this morning. Isaiah 53, 6, like sheep, we have all gone astray. Now, when the scriptures tell us we're sheep, just a hint here, that's not a compliment. Sheep are not smart animals. They wander. They become uh, bewildered, dismayed, confused, very easily. And so they wander and they get lost. There was a, an article in a British newspaper, The Telegraph. This was back in June, this summer. About 1,300 sheep. That's a big herd of sheep, flock of sheep. 1,300 that ended up in the downtown square of a Spanish city called Husca, wandering, making a mess of things, trampling stuff. Why? because their shepherd fell asleep in the field. And so at 4.30 in the morning, uh, some local resident saw this happening and called the Spanish equivalent of 911. The police came, found these sheep, and then went out to the field and saw this shepherd asleep. They went and woke him up. And of course, he's embarrassed, and, and they come into town, and he herds him, and he gets him out of town into the field, and then that morning, he was planning on taking him north to a place for pasture, and he did. But all we like sheep have gone astray. They were making a mess of things. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean like sheep we have gone astray? Well, one of the characteristics of sheep is that they, they love green grass. They love it. And they'll do whatever they, it takes to get to it and to eat it. And so if a sheep sees up on a hill a patch of green grass, the sheep is going after it. Even if, in this happens. Sheep will climb up a hill and they'll get onto a ledge to eat this green grass and they'll get stuck. They can't get back down. And in fact, they'll eat the grass and shift around to where the, sometimes they'll just fall off to their death. And that's a picture, a very, very appropriate picture of what it means for us to go astray. That we see patches of green grass and we run after it even if when we get to that green grass that we so have been longing for, we get stuck, so to speak. It's a picture of our sinful wanderings. I've seen this happen throughout the years in relationships, even in my own life. But, but someone, 
you, you see the, the woman or the man of your dreams, or you see the relationship that you want to be in, and, and finally you get into this dating relationship, and suddenly what happens? Your confidence boosts, your self-esteem rises, your self-worth rises, you're walking on air, right? Because this relationship, without you even realizing it, your actual identity and self-worth get wrapped up in this relationship. I was a, a freshman in high school. My first dating relationship, Karen Mimily, I remember it. We started dating. Well, before Karen dated me, she had dated a, a guy by the name of Eric Calvet. And Eric was a, an incredibly popular guy in high school. So I started dating Karen, and, and my friends and people I didn't even know would come up to me and say, Keith, are you dating Karen? And I'd say, yes. And they'd say, did you know that, did you know that she dated Eric Calvet? And I'd say, yes. <laughs> I mean, but suddenly, I'm a freshman in high school. Suddenly, my identity, my self-worth, it felt good, was wrapped up in this relationship. But what happens when a relationship comes to an end? What happens when you get dumped, when, it, when you break up? When, what happens? You, you fall. You're on a ledge. You get the green grass. And then what happens? It gets ripped out from under you and you fall. All like sheep, we have gone astray. That we go after these things that put us in a place where eventually we fall. You know, the problem here is not that sheep go after green grass, that you and I go after green grass is where we find it. That that's the issue. And that we need rescue. You know, it's interesting. You think about the sheep up on that ledge that finally gets that patch of green grass. There's only two options for that sheep to to get down. One is that it gets rescued. The second is that it falls. And we find ourselves in the same place. When we give ourselves to a patch of green grass, right, that's apart from the Lord, apart from Jesus, and, and, and eventually it drops us, right, we're left there with, with two options. We can't get out. Someone has to come rescue us or we fall. Now, the second important truth that we see here about what it means to be like sheep that go astray, is not only that we need rescue, right? We can't get back down, we need rescue, but second is we need thorough rescue. The other characteristic about sheep is that when they get separated from the flock, they get bewildered, they get confused, they literally will just lie down and they'll sit there and they'll wait until the shepherd comes to get them. When the shepherd comes, the sheep aren't like dogs. The shepherd doesn't say, you know, snap, snap, whistle, and the sheep pops up and runs to the mat. No, the sheep will sit there and lay down. The shepherd has to come literally pick the sheep up, put them on his shoulders, and walk them back to the flock. Sheep can't rescue themselves. They don't rescue themselves. Second parable here even gets at it more, the lost coin, right? Right? The coin can't find itself. The coin can't save itself. The coin can't rescue itself. Jesus is making a strong point with these parables. He's saying that humanity, human beings, are utterly lost in sin. They cannot rescue themselves. Now, this is an offensive doctrine. It's called the doctrine of original sin, meaning that you're born into this world sinful. You inherit the sin of Adam. It's the doctrine of total depravity. It means that you are absolutely dead in sin and can't rescue yourself. It's an offensive doctrine that our modern culture has pushed back on, and it's nothing new. 
You go back to the, uh, the 18th century in the Enlightenment. Enlightenment thinkers like Rousseau, they were pushing back on this offensive doctrine. And so what they started teaching was that, that people were born innocent. That you're born innocent. You make some mistakes, but you just need to be guided back. Well, in the past couple hundred years, it's obvious that that thinking is wrong. In fact, uh, Alan Jacobs, he quotes a secular critic, meaning a, a, a non-religious critic, who says this, Randall Jarrell, he says, most of us know now that Rousseau, Enlightenment thinkers, were wrong. That man, when you knock his chains off, set up the death camps. Soon we will know everything the 18th century didn't know about human capacity for selfishness, greed, and violence. And I would say we're in it right now in our country with what we see happening. Then Jacob goes on to say this, but wait a minute. Modern culture says it has left behind Christianity's repulsive doctrine of original sin, but it also says it's left behind the naive thinking of the Enlightenment about human nature. He says, so where are we? Now, you may say, Keith, what difference does this make? I mean, listen, whether you're born sinful or not, we all agree we sin, right? So what difference does it make? And I would say it makes all the difference in the world. Here's why. If you're born innocent and you just sin, you don't need a savior. You need a teacher. You need somebody that'll just direct you back to that place of goodness and innocence. And the problem is that doesn't work. I mean, look at the Bible. Look at what God did when his people were sinning. When Israel was sinning, what did he do? He sent teachers, prophets. And what did they do to the prophets? Oh, they listened and they cleaned up their act. No, they killed them. <laughs> they killed the teachers and prophets. Right? See, so, you no, know, this makes all the difference in the world. You don't need a good teacher, you need a savior that you're utterly dead in sin. And the reason why God's people kill the prophets and, and that we do the same thing is that deep down, there's this innate rebellion in us that doesn't want to submit to anyone, let alone God. That's the doctrine of original sin, total depravity. And so who does Jesus welcome? Not the people that think they need an ethical tune-up. Not the people that just think they need some behavior management. That's not who Jesus welcomes for rescue. Jesus welcomes those who believe they're dead in sin and they need to be rescued. Look who he's speaking to, two groups of people. You've got Pharisees and you've got tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors and sinners knew they were lost, knew they needed rescue. The Pharisees were offended by the idea that they would need rescue. So Jesus welcomes sinners who need rescue rescue. Second, Jesus welcomes sinners who join the celebration, who join the celebration. You read these two parables, and it's full of joy. The word joy, the word rejoice, it's all over these two parables. This utter joy that comes out. Why so much joy? Well, in both parables, something precious is lost. Something of great value is lost. The, the shepherd loses one of his sheep, the woman loses one of her 10 silver coins. And what's going on there is it was probably part of her dowry, which she probably wore on an ornamental headdress. It would be the equivalent today of a wedding ring um, or an engagement ring and a wedding band that a woman wears that has studded diamonds in it. One of the diamonds pops out, right? She, 
one of those coins fell out, and she, when she realized it, she thought somewhere in this house it fell out. And so she starts sweeping the house to find it. Why? Because it was valuable. It wasn't a penny. It was something very valuable that she lost. Jesus is speaking this parable to Pharisees who did not place value on tax collectors and sinners. They didn't place value on them. And in fact, they devalued them so much that they didn't care that they were lost. They didn't want them to be found. In fact, the Pharisees pre- preferred that they were lost, shunned, excluded. They did not put value on them. You say, why? Why didn't they put value on the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus clearly was putting value on? It's because they missed the first point. They missed the first point. That they were utterly sinful and in need of rescue. That's the very point that they meant. They, they, they believed that they contributed something to their salvation, that they weren't dead and needed complete rescue, that there was, there was something they contributed, and so it caused them to devalue tax collectors and sinners. Let me share this. It might give some insight. A teacher was having a conversation with someone after the class he taught one day, and he was teaching on this issue of original sin and doctrine of just total, utter depravity and lostness and, and the inability for anybody to rescue themselves, the inability of anyone to make the first move to God, right, that we're dead in sin. And he was teaching on how God in eternity past had, Ephesians 1, chosen some before the foundation of the world, right, the idea that he was choosing people. And this, this woman came up to him afterwards and said, with, with great respect, said, I, I, I disagree with you. I don't agree. And he said, okay, he said, well, tell me about your roommate. Is your roommate a Christian? And she said, no. And he said, why, why are you a Christian and your roommate's not? And she said, well, I, I received Christ and she didn't. And he said, okay, well, why did you receive Christ and she didn't? She said, well, I, I repented and she didn't. And he said, okay, fine. Why did you repent and she didn't? And she said, well, I humbled myself and she didn't. You see where he was going. And he said, so what I'm hearing you say is that, that you believe that there was something in you a little better, a, a, a tiny bit smarter, a little bit open. That's why you believe you're a Christian and she's not, that, that you are the author of your salvation. That you, that you and your roommate were, were sitting in the, in the Atlantic Ocean treading water, the helicopter comes overhead with, for rescue, drops the life preservers, and, and you chose and were able to get to your life preserver, but she wasn't. You see, the, 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 the Pharisees believed that they, they, con, they contributed something to their salvation, that, that they swam 50 feet to their life preserver. And how dare Jesus would not demand that these tax collectors and sinners swim 50 feet to their life preserver. When the scriptures teach, no, we're, we're face down in the water. We don't grab any life preserver. We are, we are grabbed by God and made alive in Christ. See, as long as you believe that you contribute something to your salvation, sure, you respond in faith and repentance, but that, 
that you contribute something to the accomplishing of your salvation, then you have in you the seed of judgment. You have in you the seed of oppression. You have in you the seed of, I'm better than you. And it's that seed that will cause you to devalue other people who aren't like you. To devalue other people that haven't worked as hard as you. Or to devalue other people that aren't as disciplined as you. It's that seed that will cause you when you pull up to a traffic light to have the thought that you have about the person standing in the median with a sign. Or it's, the, it's, that, it's that seed that will cause you when you walk into a store and see certain people or certain kinds of people to have the thoughts that you have. That if you believe you've contributed something to your salvation, then you have in you that seed of judgment and oppression. And that's exactly the seed that the Pharisees had in them. And it's what caused them to devalue, to devalue people, to devalue the people that God placed great value on. Now, notice what happens after the the sheep and the coin are found. Friends and neighbors are invited over, party is thrown. And Jesus says, this is exactly what happens in heaven. When one sinner repents and turns to Christ, that there is a party in heaven. Look at verse seven. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, a party erupts in heaven when someone repents and turns to Jesus. Luke 19, 10, why? Jesus says, I came to seek and save that which was lost. And so when a lost person comes home, there is a party that heaven rejoices when someone comes home. You know, when Jesus sat down to eat with the tax collectors and the sinners of the day, I imagine there was a twinkle in his eye. I imagine there was a smile on his face. I imagine his heart was, that he was beating with joy inside because these are the people I came to save. And when one comes home, there's a party in heaven. Kay Warren describes the, the picture she saw in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. She was coming home with a friend from somewhere she was at. She was headed back to California and she was on a layover in Dallas. And she get, they get off their plane and they're walking through the airport and they hear this patriotic music playing. And as they get closer, they see a group of people with American flags waving their flags. And as they get closer, they realize this is a group of people that are about to welcome troops home from deployment. Seven, eight months of deployment. And as they're walking by, someone said, hey, do you wanna join us? And they were early for their next flight. They said, sure. So they grabbed a couple of flags And she said what she saw and what she experienced when those troops came through the door and the place absolutely erupted and the music was blaring and the flags were waving and people were shouting, welcome home, welcome home. We're so proud of you. And she thought maybe that's a a slight picture of what happens in heaven when a sinner turns to Jesus and repents, that there is an absolute party. Do you know that when you came to Christ, 
there was a party in heaven? Do you know that when your parents, if you were raised in a Christian home, when they came to Christ, there was a party in heaven? There's a party when someone comes home. Who does Jesus welcome? Sinners who need rescue, sinners who join the celebration, and finally, sinners who form a gracious community. In Jesus' day, when, when you invited someone to dinner, it was an offer of friendship. When you invited someone to dinner, the invitation said this, I want to be in community with you. This is why what was happening in front of the Pharisees was so shocking. Jesus wasn't just saying he loved the tax collectors and sinners. He was saying, I want to be with them. And I'm forming a faith community around them and with them, comprised of them. You see, these tax collectors and sinners were never a part of the religious community of the Pharisees. And now Jesus is forming this radical community around himself of tax collectors and sinners, these very people. That's why it was so shocking to the Pharisees. They couldn't figure it out. This is what Jesus was saying. I come from heaven. I come from a community where there's a celebration over sinners saved by grace, not righteous people who have nothing to repent of. That's what he's saying. I came from that community, and now I'm gonna build it here on earth of sinners who are saved by grace, not righteous people who have nothing to repent of. And what is this community? It's individuals who have been bonded through a common experience. And what is the common experience? It's life and death. Ephesians 2.1 says you're dead in your sins. You move down into Ephesians, further into Ephesians 2. It says, but... Through God's mercy, you've been made alive in Christ, dead, now you're alive. And then towards the end of Ephesians 2, God says, now I'm building you together into a dwelling place for me, into a community, a ragtag bunch of sinners who have been rescued by grace. They were dead, now they're alive. Jesus says, that's the community that I'm forming. And the more intense the experience the more intense the common experience, the stronger the bond. The more intense the common experience, the stronger the bond. One pastor was sharing about a Bosnian. It was in his congregation. And uh, this Bosnian, when he came to the States, he said to the pastor, he said, you Americans uh, really get mean during election years. I mean, the... Republicans hate Democrats and Democrats hate Republicans? He said, listen, this Bosnian said, I'm a Democrat, but I have this Bosnian friend who's a Republican. And the fact that he's a Republican and I'm a Democrat is inconsequential. And the pastor said, why? And he said, because he and I lived through life and death together in war-torn Bosnia. You see, they had been friends in Bosnia before they came over to the States and they went through all the, the war and the war torn and they saw lives lost. They, they literally had experienced death and life together. And then this Bosnian said, I have a son who grew up in the States, didn't grow up in Bosnia. So he never experienced life and death in Bosnia and he went to law school. 
right, to be a lawyer. And he said, my son has more oneness with white-collar people than with blue-collar Bosnians. Why? Because he didn't experience life and death in Bosnia. You see, Jesus is forming a community around people that have the common experience of dead in sin, alive in Christ. That's it. Oh, we have differences, and we come from different backgrounds, and we have different preferences. Jesus says, that's, that's fine. But I'm forming a community of people that were dead in sin and now alive in Christ and know that they did nothing to rescue themselves. That's the community I'm forming. In the book, Deep Down Dark, Hector Tobar, he tells the story of, and you may remember this, back in 2010, the 33 uh, miners in Chile, the Chilean miners that were trapped 2,000 feet below the surface when the mine shaft entrance and exit collapsed. So you've got 33 people that were trapped in this, it was a fairly large room, they called it the refuge, and they were in there for three months. They rationed food. They, uh, they said every other day they would just get a, a tiny little bit of food, right, to try to keep alive for as long as they could, guessing that they would never be rescued. And in the book, it describes um, early on when they were trapped, uh, this, this man, Don Jose Henriquez. He was a Christian man. And he leaned over to one of his fellow miners that would trap, Mario, and he said, you know, God is the only way out of this. So Mario, before the miner, said, Don Jose, would you please lead us in prayer? And Don Jose dropped to his knees, and all the miners dropped to their knees, and this is what he said. He prayed. He said, we aren't the best men but Lord, have pity on us. And that simple prayer, it struck at the hearts of the miners that were stuck in that room 2,000 feet below the surface. And Victor Segovia knew he drank too much. Victor Zamora knew he was too quick to anger. Pedro Cortez thought about the poor father he had been to his young, younger daughter. He left the girl's mother, hadn't been with her, knew that it was devastating this little girl. You know, all these they realized, they knew they were sinners. And then Don Jose went on to pray, Jesus Christ, our Lord, let us enter the sacred, sacred throne of your grace. Consider this moment of difficulty of ours. We are sinners and we need you. Now, no one had ever been trapped that long below the surface and survived. But on October 10th, 13th, 2010, NASA finally was able to drill a, a hole all the way down to this room in a, in a rescue vessel, and they brought the men out. And the men came out of that shaft that had been drilled down to the ground. They came out slapping high fives, singing victory chants, hugging each other. And these were the same men that three months earlier were co-workers on the A-shift in the mine. They didn't even know each other, really. In fact, some of them probably didn't like each other working on the mind shift. But they spent three months functionally dead in that room. And miraculously, they were rescued and brought out alive. And because of that, they were now friends and brothers because of that common experience of being dead and now being alive. 
You know what Jesus is saying with these parables? He's saying this. Would, would you quit asking me to help you rescue yourself? Would you quit just putting a hand up and saying, hey, Jesus, I need a little bit of help? <laughs> He's saying, you're dead. You're dead in sin. And I came to rescue you. And what, here's the common experience he's looking for. Not common experience of poor choices and better behavior management. Or the common experience of poor choices and now more disciplined. No, here's the common experience he's calling for. Admitting your true condition that you are dead and can't rescue yourself and rejoicing that Jesus Christ and Christ alone by his grace has raised you from the dead and given you life. And that should produce in a body of people a tremendous community of grace, of people that are slapping high fives and singing, singing victory chants because they've been rescued. That's who Jesus welcomes. You know, the Vision Banquet and Vision 2025, we put the slides up there. Listen, peel back all the layers of a nice map with, with colored dots on it and, and peel back the layers of the numbers. All that's a means to an end of Jesus welcoming sinners into his house and saying, will you come home? That's what Vision 2025 is. We want Jacksonville and the people of Jacksonville who are lost and can't rescue themselves to come home. And Jesus is inviting us to be a part of that. And to say, will you join me? Will you join the celebration? I, there's a party going on right now in heaven. I mean, think about it. Across the entire world, there are people coming to Christ. There are people in Jacksonville right now in a church service potentially that are coming to Christ. Heaven's rejoicing. <laughs> and around the world, people are coming home. And, and Jesus says, will you join me and be a part of that celebration of welcoming sinners? welcoming them home. Let's pray. Father, every one of us here this morning that is in Christ, who's come home, is home because of your grace and of your work. There isn't one of us that has rescued ourselves, contributed to our rescue, that you and you alone, God, are author of salvation. And Father, when we understand that, when we have experienced together that common experience of death in sin and life in Christ, it produces a tremendously gracious community and we pray that you would be forming that here at East. And that as we set our eyes on, on church plants in different parts of the city and on launching new community groups and new neighborhoods, that it would be about joining you, Jesus, on mission to see people rescued, to see people come home, and, and to mirror the celebration that happens in heaven when one sinner repents. Father, would you help us by your spirit to put value 
on people who haven't come home yet. And would you help us to see it is only by the grace of God that we are not in someone else's place or shoes. That we would be a gracious, welcoming, warm community to your glory. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.